You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln audio podcast. Cammie and I find ourselves in an, uh, in an incredible season of life, a really fun season of life. Some of you share this same season. We're grandparents, not first-time grandparents, but we have two incredible grandsons. Our oldest grandson is Reed, and he's four years old, and our youngest grandson is Elias, and uh, they, he's about 21 months old. In fact, we had him to our home last night, and when we have him to our home, we just have so much fun. Now, trust me, it's a lot of work. Because they like to play, and then they like to play, and they like to play, and then they want to play some more. And when they're finished playing, they want to actually play some more. They don't want to go to sleep. They don't want to eat. They want to play. But we, we're, we're in it. We're in it to win it with them. And so when they come over, uh, Reed especially has this incredible imagination. So we build pretend cities, and we tell, um, he, again, his imagination is big. So he likes for, us, for me to make up stories and tell. So we tell silly stories. And we say, uh, we, we share in read terms, spooky stories. And our spooky stories aren't all that spooky. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. But we, uh, we tickle and we laugh and we run. We love on them and we spoil them. And then we send them home. And then they come back another time and we do it all over again. And they, we send them home. And we rest, and then they come back. And when we go to their house, we do the same kinds of things. We, we run around. We, you, you, we act crazy. I mean, literally, we just act crazy. One of the things that we uh, really love is watching them grow and develop and learn new things. For Elias, the 21-month-old, uh, one of his most recent larger achievements is that he learned how to walk. Uh, and that's a good thing. I mean, he needed to learn how to walk. He waited a little bit longer than his brother Reed. We think that uh, Elias could have walked much earlier, but he was a great crawler. I mean, he could get around crawling like Speedy Gonzalez. I mean, slapping those hands and those knees on the floor. He got everywhere he wanted to, and he could get into anything he wanted to. But eventually, he learned how to uh, pull himself up on the furniture and just kind of walk around very cautiously with the safety of the furniture. But then one day, um, Elias, we noticed that he actually had the courage where he got up from his crawl position and he stood in the middle of the floor and he learned how to balance. And he was pretty shaky, but he learned how to balance. And so we were sure this is the moment that Elias is going to walk. And so you could hear, come on, Elias, take that first step. Walk to Poppy. Walk, there he is. Walk to Poppy. Come on. Walk to Lola. Walk to, come on to Mommy. And then what he would do, he'd fall down on the ground and he'd start crawling because he could get around much quicker crawling. And then again, he would get up. He would get his balance pretty shaky, and we were sure that was the time. Come on, walk to Lola, walk to Poppy. And he was down on the ground, and he was crawling again like Speedy Gonzalez. But one day, he makes his way up. He, he gets his balance. And just like in this picture, he does this. And we're all with bated breath. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And he takes that first step. And then guess what? He's down on the floor crawling around because this isn't very fast for him. He's got places to go and things to do. But eventually, he comes back. He stands up. He does the same thing. Pretty shaky. But he, he does this. And then he waits a little while and he does this. And we're applauding and we're clapping and we're yelling. We're cheering him on. We scared him so bad he falls down on the ground and he starts crawling. But then one day, here's what happens. He gets up. 
He gets his balance, not quite as shaky as before. And he takes that first step. And then he takes the next step. And then he takes the next step. And he takes the next step. And before you know it, over time, he's walking very competently. He's mastered walking. And so uh, when he comes to our house now, we never see him crawl. Because he not only can he walk, but he can run. He can get anywhere he wants to because he's mastered the art of walking. So uh, when you think in terms of child development, uh, here would be a principle. It's impossible to walk unless you're willing to take the first step and then the next step and the next step and the next step. And those early steps require a lot of courage, but with time, with that courage, as those steps are taken, confidence is built, and so then walking becomes normal. The children learn to walk. Um, This isn't simply a uh, baby learning to walk principle, but I believe this is also a life principle. Embracing the adventures, the challenges, the dreams, the desires of life require that we would be willing to take the first step and then the next step and the next step, and the next step. And there's some great stories throughout history that one of those is the story of Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, On May 29th, uh, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary was the first man confirmed to reach the peak of Mount Everest. And if if Sir Edmund Hillary had not have been willing to take the first step and then the next step and the next step in that climb, he would have never made it to the top. Another story is the story of Wilma Rudolph. Wilma Rudolph was born the 20th of 22 children. Can you imagine? They got the Duggars up, right? The 20th of 22 children. Uh, When she was four years old, she contracted uh, double pneumonia and scarlet fever. And as a result, her left leg was left paralyzed and and, uh, somewhat deformed. She didn't let that stop her. She learned to walk. She took the next step and learned to walk with a brace. She didn't let that stop her. She took the next step. When she was nine years old, she learned to walk without the assistance of a, a brace. She didn't let that stop her. She took the next step and she decided that she wanted to learn how to run. And she wasn't successful at first, but because she was persevering, she learned how to run. And then she took the next step. She decided that she would enter uh, races and she began to race. And she didn't win all the races at first, but she became uh, uh, an avid runner. But then she took the next step and she entered the Olympics. And in 1960... At the Olympics in Rome, she was the first female to win three gold medals in one single Olympic Games. Isn't that incredible? I mean, those are incredible stories. But here's what I want to say. More than a baby learning to walk principle, more than a life principle, this is a spiritual principle. That's what's most important is this is a spiritual principle that must be applied to our lives. Here's what I mean. Um, Our life consist of much more than our daily routine of waking, breathing, 
uh, eating, working, uh, sleeping, those routines that we do on a daily basis. Our life consists much more of that. Uh, when we came into or when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are born again and we are born of the Spirit of God. And at that moment, something happens and God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, begins to reside in us. And so we begin to live out our lives in a totally different way. We live out our lives as we live and walk in the Spirit. In other words, we are spiritual beings. Earlier this summer, we talked about our destiny. We spent several weeks talking about destiny. And we confirmed, we affirmed that God has placed within us a God-sized, God-given destiny. That God has determined, predetermined uh, something great for us to do. In order for us to accomplish what God has called us to do, it requires action. And the action is, that's required is if we're going to accomplish the destiny that God has called us to, we have to be willing to take that first step and then the next step and the next step and the next step. It's not until we take those steps that we can begin to accomplish. Last weekend, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, uh, which God prepared uh, in advance for us to do. Listen, in order to accomplish what God has prepared in advance for us to do, the spiritual principle is that we'll never be able to do it unless we're willing to take the first step and then the next step and the next step. And the first step will take great courage and then courage and then courage and then courage. But once we begin to take those steps, then we become uh, spirit-led, spirit-driven in what we're doing and it becomes naturally supernatural to us. So I began to think through this whole thought process of uh, being able to accomplish all that God has us to do requires taking the next step. And the question that I ask myself is, can I find proof of this in the Bible? And that's a good question to ask. Don't you agree? You didn't come to hear my opinion. You came to hear a word from the word. And so I asked, can I find evidence of this in scripture? Does the Bible prove this point? And the answer is yes, it does. Uh, as there are many scenarios in scripture, but I was I, able to identify at least four outstanding scenarios, stories that prove this point that in order to, to do what God has called us to do, we have to be willing to take the first step. Um, I want you to turn to John chapter 2. I'm going to begin by having us look at John chapter 2. I'm going to read to you from uh, to about, oh, I don't know, 11 verses. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, 
fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So what do we have? We have a scenario where Jesus and his mother Mary are attending a wedding. The very same wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's believed that Mary um, had something to do with the arrangements of this wedding and that she had some level of authority by the mere fact that she ordered the servants to do whatever Jesus told them to do. Something unthinkable happens in the midst of this wedding reception. The wine runs out. This is not good for this kind of celebration. So what does Mary do? She looks to Jesus. This is her obvious answer. Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus doesn't act immediately, but he does act. And when he acts, he speaks to the servants and he directs them. I want you to take those six jars, those stone jars, large jars. I want you to take them down. I want you to fill them with water and I want you to bring them back. Each of those uh, jars would hold between 20 20 and 30 gallons of water as we read. And so the servants did exactly what he asked them to do. And then when they bring it back, he says, now what I want you to do is I want you to draw some water from the, uh, from the pots and I want you to take it to the wedding host and present it to him as wine. And they did. And we know that a miracle happened because of the response of the wedding host. His response is, oh my goodness, this stuff is incredible. He calls the groom aside. He says, I I can't believe you did this. Typically at this point of the reception, the people are pretty tipsy. They don't really know what's going on. And so you bring out the cheap stuff, but you've saved the best for last. This is so commendable. And obviously we attribute this miracle to Jesus. But Jesus chose to involve the servants in the process of the miracle. Think about it. Jesus spoke to the servants and he said, take those jars, those large jugs and fill them with water. And you know what? They did. They went over, they took the first step and then the following steps to go and fill those jugs with water. And then when they bring them back, he speaks and he says, now, and they may have thought this was really insane, take some water out of the jug and go and present it to the wedding host as wine. Could you imagine being the one assigned to do that? You know, you just went and you got water. And now Jesus is saying, take that water and present it to the wedding host as wine. I imagine him walking up and going, uh, sir, here is your, uh, well, uh, uh, here, here's your, whoa, your wine. And the host tastes it and it's, it's wine. I've always wondered, when did the water become wine? 
Was it, was it as soon as they put the first scoop of water into the pot? Or did it turn into wine while they were walking back with the jugs? Or did it turn into wine when they got the first scoop out? Or did it turn into wine just before the host tasted it? We don't know. But what we know is a miracle happened and the water turned into wine. Listen, here's the bottom line. Jesus didn't need the servants. He didn't need the water that day to make sure there was plenty of wine at that wedding. But he chose to involve them. He chose to involve them. Um, he would not have been able to turn water into wine unless someone went and got the water that could be turned into wine. And the miracle would never have been revealed unless someone was willing to take the necessary steps to go to the wedding host so that the wine could be tasted. Jesus chose to involve them. He could have, this is, when God created the universe, he spoke through the word, Jesus being the word, and he created out of nothing. But instead this day, he chose to involve these servants in a miracle. They were part of the process. And here's what I want to say to us. In the same way, God chooses to involve us in his work. It's not because he needs us, but it's because he chooses to involve us uh, uh, so that we can be part of the, of the miracle process. So that we can walk out this natural, supernatural life so that his glory can be revealed to everyone. But it requires an action. It requires that whatever he's calling us to, regardless of how insane we might think it would be, regardless of how uh, scary it might be, we have to be willing to take the first step and then the next step, and then the next step. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter uh, 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read to you uh, eight verses, beginning in verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have a compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. And they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Um, it's a pretty straightforward story. Um, Jesus and the disciples have been with a large crowd. Uh, it talks about 4,000, but there were actually more than 4,000 people there that day because that wasn't counting the women and the children. There could have been up to 10,000 people present that day. Um, Jesus and the disciples have been with this large crowd of people in what I would consider like a three-day intensive discipleship training course. I mean, he's been working, he's been teaching them. And when they finish, uh, they've been together three days and he has compassion. He says, I don't want to send them away hungry and weak because some of them have come for a long distance. So he says, what do we have? And so they pooled their resources and they came up. They had seven loaves of bread and several small fish. Jesus blesses the loaves. He blesses the fish. And then he 
tells the disciples to distribute them. And I love what the end of verse 6 says. And it says, and they do so. You know what that equates to? And they were willing to take the next step. Because honestly, did this really make sense that seven loaves of bread and a few small fish would feed this crowd? But something happened. As they took the first step and then the next step and the next step, the fish and the loaves began to multiply. Wouldn't that have been incredible to see this like never-ending basket? You keep reaching and there's more and there's more and there's more and there's more and there's more. That's exactly what God does. And it's the same kind of scenario that Jesus didn't really require the loaves and the fish. He didn't really require the disciples to feed that crowd that day. Again, he's the son of God. The world was spoken, came into being because he was the word. But he chose that day to involve the disciples in the miracle. And I fully believe that it wasn't until they took the first step and then the next step and the next step that the fish and the loaves began to multiply. And because they were willing, more than 10,000 people were fed that day. God chose to involve them in the process. I'll say it again. In the same way, God chooses to involve us in his work. But in order to accomplish whatever he's called us to do, we have to take the first step and the next step. And the next step. And then we begin to see the destiny or whatever he's called us to realize. Uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Very familiar story. Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to begin in verse 22. It says, Immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. And I'm going to stop right there. Um, Another straightforward story. The story speaks for itself. So often in this story, we focus on the fact that Peter failed. That Peter got his eyes off. You know what's, what's interesting, reflecting back in this letter that Paul wrote. Again, remember, he, he, um, he visited them. And when he came back, he sent a letter. Um, it didn't work. He heard that they were not behaving. So he sent the second letter, which is actually 1 Corinthians. Um, it still didn't work. We actually know from 2 Corinthians that Paul actually uh, made a visit, another visit, a second visit. It's not recorded in Acts. But he, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the time he came back to them again because they just weren't getting it. He'd had a personal visit, two different letters. He'd sent different people, and they just were really struggling. So he went out, and it says that he had a painful meeting is how he described it. A painful visit. And uh, 
it was a come to Jesus meeting, I guess, where he just said, and laid it on the line. And we know from 2 Corinthians and the content that we see in there that they finally began to get it because the tone is very different. They finally discovered that the significance in life comes from serving one another, not from being selfish and wanting things your own way. Serving one another is the key. <clears throat> May that always be true for the people of Grace Covenant Statesville. Let's pray. Father, this morning we've had a chance to, um, again, just to, to sing and lift our voices and worship. We've had a chance to give. We've had a chance to talk and share and, and laugh at some goofy videos. And uh, Father, again, all of it is because of our love and, and our passion for you and our desire to live out our faith. And Father, even though our faith is incredibly personal, it was never meant to be individualistic. It was always intended to be lived in relationship with other Christ followers. So God, thank you for the people of Grace Covenant Statesville. Father, thank you for what you're building and developing here and that you've called us to be a part of it. And uh, Lord, our desire is to honor you in all that we say and do. <clears throat> Father, if there's anyone here who is feeling a little left out, I pray, God, that an extra dose of grace would be on them this morning. Father, that uh, maybe there's feelings that have been hurt or maybe things didn't set quite right. Father, I pray that you would heal that in the name of Jesus right now. And Father, maybe there's, as we're just sitting here reflecting, maybe, Father, someone comes to mind that maybe we weren't as gracious as we could have been and maybe we need to go back to them and ask for forgiveness and make sure that that relationship is right. Uh, Father, I pray that you would protect this congregation from those seeds of anger, from those seeds of strife and division, that they would not take root and that they would die quickly. Father, that your Holy Spirit would protect us as a congregation. So Father, we thank you again for this day. And Lord, as we leave this place, I ask, Father, that you would uh, continue to go before us and prepare the way. Father, that you give your people favor with uh, the tasks they put their hands to, with the relationships and the people they meet. Father, that each would be blessed this day, I pray. It is in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Couldn't take the next step. And I want to spend the last few minutes talking about this. I want to identify four reasons that we often don't take the next step. The first one is the fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. I'm the first to confess I don't like uncertainty. I don't like to know. I don't like to not know where I'm going. I don't like to not know how long it's going to take to get there. I don't like to know. I don't like to not know what's going to be involved. Um, and I don't like to not know what's going to be required of me. And all of those things represent safety. And when I fall into my safety mechanism, then I cut the need of God out of the formula. I'm really saying, God, I don't need you. Actually, God, I don't want you because I want to know everything. And we talk about this so often, how we want to control our life. If I continue, if we continue to do what we know and do what we uh, uh, feel is safe, then we've, we've, we've X God out of, the, out of the formula. Here's a second reason. Um, excuses. In other words, we're, we're looking for a way out. Um, 
some of our excuses might be, you know, God, in this season of my life, I just don't think that's going to work right now. Um, you know, so maybe ask somebody else because, you know, it's just, just not going to work with, with my season. Uh, I, I hope you'll understand that. Or sometimes, uh, you know, God, uh, I, I don't think I can really coordinate that with my schedule. I'm pretty busy. And, and so um, I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't have, I don't have time. Sometimes uh, our excuse is, uh, and hear me out on this, is let me pray about that. We need to pray about everything. But I can tell by your laugh that sometimes you use let me pray about this as an excuse. <laughs> let me pray about it. Uh, and, and then you're going to go off and you're going to hope they never, that God never asks again. Right? Uh, we do need to pray about everything. But yet prayer can't be an excuse to put off what God is asking us. We need to pray about it and hear his voice. And it doesn't take God always long to speak. We need to listen and we need to be willing to take the next step. The third is disobedience. Disobedience. Um, disobedience is when we know what the next step is that we should take, but we don't do it. It's when we know what the next step is, but we don't do it. When God has, con has clearly revealed his will and we know what to do, but we don't, we actually limit God's work in our lives. I mean, so sometimes it's just, I, I, I'm not going to do that, God. I just, I don't want to do it. And so God had something great for us and for other people. And so we're limiting God's power working through us. And finally, procrastination. I'll do it, but not today. Maybe, uh, maybe next week or sometime afterwards. You know, I, I'll get around to it, God. Uh, just, can you put a reminder on my phone? Yeah, because I, I, I do want to do that. Uh, procrastination is the assassination of amazing opportunities that God has for us. You know, here, here's the bottom line of the message today. God has prepared great things in advance for us to do. We can't deny that. And God has called us to be part of his miracle working process. Uh, God has called us to be the church, his hands and feet. But his hands and feet, we have to be willing to take the next step to accomplish what he's called us to. We live in a world that has great need. We see that every day. There's great need within the church. And those needs will never be met, whether they're in the world or in the church, unless we're people who are willing to take the first step and the next step and the next step so God's work can be accomplished, His grace can be poured out in our lives. So here's what I want to leave you with this morning. It's a simple question. Can you identify something that God has been asking you to do? He's been working with you about doing. And you've, you've been putting it off. Somehow you, you just haven't taken the next step. What is that? Why haven't you taken the next step? And what will you do about it? Will you take the next step? Because when you take that next step, you're going to find yourself in a whole new world of God's miracle-working, supernatural power, changing lives. One step at a time. Would you stand? I'd like to pray for you. Father, thank you that you called us. Uh, you created us for a purpose, on purpose. Thank you that you prepared 
good works for us to do in advance. We recognize that our salvation is not dependent on that, but the world needs us. So, Father God, I ask that you would work in each of our hearts and in those areas where we've been uh, unwilling to take the next step and things you've been speaking to us, I pray that you would help us today to have courage and confidence to take the next step and the next step and the next step so that we can see your power at work in and through us. Father God, I pray that you would just cause us to begin to happen. Unleash within us through the power of the Holy Spirit that which we need to help us take those steps. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.